At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Well, hello, everyone. It's David Nutt here, and welcome to another edition of the Drug Science Podcast. And today I have with me a journalist and documentary filmmaker called Andrew Gold. He's also a podcaster, and we've got a deal that he'll do mine if I do his later, which I've agreed to. So his podcasts are, I suppose, they're kind of medical scientific. You're interested in people and, and the effects of things on people. Would that be fair to say, Andrew? Do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, yes, absolutely. You're right. Yes, I'm a journalist, documentary maker, podcaster, and I like to get to the human of all the matters, as you say. And my podcast is called On the Edge with Andrew Gold. But the the sort of, I suppose, irony of that is the people I speak to tend to be very central or centrist or moderate. And they're often warning against the perils of those edges, which I see as, you know, extreme ideologies, cults, and all sorts of different extreme behaviors and sometimes it's just mad crazy stories and always i just want to be curious rather than judgmental about whatever they might have done and just say like what took your mind to that place and my mind might have gone to that place as well i never want to presume that my mind that i'm somehow superior and oh how did you do that i never would have done that horrible thing you know we're all pretty uh pretty horrible when you get down to it (laughs) just some of us hide it better so you're a podcaster, of course, but you're a filmmaker. And one of the you've made an interesting film, I think, about the exorcism. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Why did you do that? <laughs> well, I was living out in Argentina. I became fascinated with languages in my 20s. I'm in my mid-30s now. And I don't know exactly why part of me wanted to go away, live somewhere else. It was all part of this trying to understand different minds and different human beings. And I thought no better way to do that than actually learn the languages of people from cultures that were very different from my own. So I had been living in France and Colombia and Brazil, and I later moved to Germany. But this was a seven-year stint that I did in Argentina, Buenos Aires. So I was just sitting about thinking, you know, what's my next topic? And there are all sorts of things when you're in Argentina, for example, the Nazis, you know, many moved to Argentina. Mm. Some people believe Hitler did as well. Mm. And many different kinds of things. And then I was just watching TV one day, and they have these kind of kinds of religious TV channels and shows and things. And I noticed this exorcist called Padre Manuel Acuna. Mm-hmm. And he was very, there was something very pompous about him, as, as often is, is the case mm. with these kinds of leaders and cult leaders. He has these big squirrel-like cheeks and very sort of angry stare and a pomposity to him. Mm. And I didn't think too much about it, just like, oh, that's annoying. But then I saw him on TV the next day and the next day and different channels and different radio channels. In, you know, I'd be in a taxi going from one place to another and I'd hear him speaking on the radio. And often it was very mainstream channels. It wasn't just the religious ones. Yeah. And he would just be telling everyone, hey, you know, Halloween's coming up. Do you want to 
ward off the demons well make sure you have three pumpkins and put it with this and you know he was giving you ingredients for a broth or something that would ward off evil spirits so i thought okay well maybe this is actually better than like nazis in argentina maybe this is more different and i can learn something and i wanted to know what what it would be like to perform an exorcism and to be involved in one to an right, extent. Right. So I got in touch and later, so after filming it, so, sold it to the BBC. But first I was doing it as a freelancer. But it wasn't, it was just about the exorcism of, well, for religious purposes, I think we're looking at people who were getting exorcised because they believed that their mental illnesses were somehow mm. due to possession. Is that right? Yeah, so this is the thing with exorcism. It tends to be, and you, and you can see how this would have happened over the centuries and millennia. If you don't have the education or the, the scientific facilities to be able to recognize what is going on in the human mind, and in, even now the best scientists in the world don't really know what's going on. We, could, you know, we don't know what's happening in the mind, but mm. these people really don't. And they come from a place, this was the impoverished suburbs of Buenos Aires. Right. It's a really a place with a real lack of education mm -hmm. and it's not the kind of place where people talk about mental illness mm -hmm. it's not the kind of place where they would you know a lot of the people i saw who were going to get exercised they had things that i would you know not being a clinician myself but i'd say okay that sounds like you've got obsessive compulsive disorder mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you might have schizophrenia you might have bulimia anorexia all these things that we mm -hmm. know you know about here out there they they didn't know and they just presume, okay, well, this must be a demon. And they do often go to doctors. It's not that they never go to psychiatrists right, right. and things. Sometimes they do. But the problem is it's there's not as anyone who's got a friend or a child or a parent with these kinds of conditions, anyone will know there's no quick fix. Yeah. And that can be very frustrating. So they might go for a month or they might go for a few months and they don't see a huge improvement. Mm. And then they go down to this guy who's saying to them, oh, well, I can give you an improvement in basically one hour. You give me a one hour session mm -hmm. and you will not be schizophrenic anymore. You will not have psychotic episodes. You won't have OCD. You won't be depressed. Well, you know, Not that he uses those words. He yeah, just says yeah. you won't have a demon anymore. And, you know, lo and behold, it works. And that was the fascinating thing mm. to find. I didn't want to just go and go, look at this crook. He's robbing everyone because I'm personally, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in all mm. this devil stuff. It's nonsense. But I wanted to find something that would surprise me. I have to find something that changes my mind about something that surprises me in some way. Yes. And that was it. It was like, wow, this thing works. And is it endorsed by the church? Presumably, is a Catholic priest, is it? Or is he, are they independent? He's independent. He's, uh, as many of these people are around Argentina and Brazil in particular, they have different kinds of evangelical whatever. So this guy, Padre Manuel, he calls himself a Lutheran oh. for some reason. And I think, I think he thinks it adds to the law. <laughs> it adds to the folklore. You know, I'm a Luther. It's some sort of German yes. vampire, maybe some sort of Transylvania, old Europe yep. Yep. he's thinking of instead of like the Catholic stuff, which he might say to people, oh, well, you've been doing this Catholic stuff in Argentina. You're getting it all wrong. The reason you're sad is because I'm a Lutheran and I'll help you. And he said that he was endorsed by whatever Lutheran church. And I emailed a couple of them just to ask and yeah. they didn't know of him. One did say he turned up to do the exams or something at yeah. one particular Lutheran society. And then he never followed through right. or something like that. But the funny thing was it got back to him that I'd been asking about him. Uh -huh. And 
this was at a point because when we started he was loving inviting us to the church yes. it was me and my friend yes. david who's a documentary yeah. maker he's a he's a director he's fantastic and yeah. he came out to argentina and we did this just mm -hmm. the two of us with no equipment no budget just us and people lent us stuff and it was wow. it was very you know on the whatever the expression is so he loved us at first because he thought we were like english and we were going to get him international worldwide uh, fame uh. and gradually my questions i was sort of i made light of him sometimes and he i don't think he realized i also asked a lot of questions about his relations with some of the women that he was exercising particularly one that it appears he was having some sort of yep. affair with she was she was over 18 so it's not illegal but there was definitely it was a woman that he had he had exercised because she spent her teenage years in a psychiatric ward with schizophrenia mm. and he exercised her and she's better now and two of them have well you know not not officially but it appears they have a relationship that led to the exorcist eventually throwing me in a cupboard and threatening to kill me because he got so upset with my questions i was asking well, you really were you're on the edge <laughs> Documentary maker. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's it. He he was livid because I, I was asking other people stuff about him. And similarly, I was asking about his credentials as a Lutheran, and that's what got me in trouble as well. He was like, you know, I know that you've been asking about me. And I was like, all right, all right. Sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. So, yeah, that's how it was. <laughs> how many was he doing a day or a week? I mean, presumably it's pretty lucrative, is it? Yeah, so it's a they do it in a very, mm, I suppose sneaky way so the exorcism itself is free oh, that's the genius oh, of it okay so they say come along it's free and it will help you and those two things are truths it is free and it probably will help it, there is like a passing the gift shop on the way out kind of thing <laughs> so you go and do your exorcist you get exercise it's a whole big song and dance other people get sort of hear about it and are excited so it's like his free pr almost and then you go out into the gift shop and it's full of trinkets and things like olive oil that you could just get from a shop for like nothing it's like extortionate and it's supposed to cure breast cancer or, or make you less likely to get breast cancer things like that and the thing is the money was even expensive for me to buy these things for the per type of people who were living out there you're talking like it's a lot of money for them to buy these things so that's where he was making his money so it's really exploitative in a subtle as you say an underhand way and how long has he been yeah. have been doing this do you think Oh, 20, 25 years. He's been doing it since he was a young exorcist. He's a huge fan of the film, The Exorcist. Yeah. What a lot of people don't know about exorcism, I think, is that we imagine it's something that's been just practiced throughout the ages. And yes, actually, yes. it was initially, like a couple thousand years ago, it started to be practiced a little bit, and it fell out of fashion. And the film, The Exorcist, brought it back in a big way, particularly for these sort of individual independent people. So... He's got <laughs> posters of the film The Exorcist plastered around his church, but with his face, his little squirrel cheeks, superimposed over the main characters. And, and he plays the music, oh, oh, oh. tubular bells, in his mass. Oh, so but this one-on-one, -on -one, isn't it? I mean, when you say it, does he have a church as well? Oh, yeah, he has a church. He does it in the nave, the, the exorcisms. And oh. he has a big mass, like a few a week. And tens of thousands of people turn up and you wow. get there and they are like frothing at the mouth they're all falling because he touches them his his clergy is sort of touching them on the head and they'd all fall over instantly and roll around like they're possessed oh my goodness i'm sorry i didn't realize it there's a whole organization behind it. it's not an individual it's this is group exorcism in a church 
he has well the clergy they you know they work for him but i found as i went along because I, I was asking more and more questions about the money and he again he i was asking about money and the women he was having relations with and he was just trying to steer it back to his amazing powers he was like no no ask me about exorcism i was like i will but i just want to know where the money's going to and all the clergy are not getting paid a penny they don't get uh -huh. paid anything so they're true believers exactly he set up this church he lives there upstairs it's his place it's got a little nave and it opens up into the street and so when people come it's like they fill up the nave they yeah. fill up the corridors next to it and they fill up streets and streets outside his yeah. in the middle of just nowhere this place it's the yeah. strangest thing and police cordon off the roads for him but it's just him so in charge you know and is he unique or do you think there are others in in argentina there are others. So the woman that he's sort of shacked up with, that's yeah. Paula, her name is, and she got quite well known over there for his exorcism on her because it was so dramatic. And it's all over YouTube and you it's called yeah. the El Exorcismo de Laura. She goes by Laura and Paula, Paula and Laura. She changes her name intermittently. And I went and tracked down her psychiatrist from when she was interned there as yeah. a schizophrenic yeah. and the psychiatrist said this is a problem we have in argentina in south america that exorcists and other kinds of shamans yeah. are coming and tempting particularly young women adolescent women yeah. away from the psychiatric wards and there's nothing some often there's nothing that the psychiatrist can do but you were quite intrigued by the fact that it seemed as though she had a diagnosis of schizophrenia and and no longer has it. And that is, I think, quite a rather unusual, def definitely causing to question whether the diagnosis was correct and whether it was more hysterical. But overall, you've you've been impressed by the, the psychological impact of these, these interventions, yes? Yes, absolutely. Look, I think regarding her schizophrenia, I suppose, and again, I'm not a clinician, but I suppose there was, there's a spectrum to what extent someone might have it. What the psychiatrist said to us is a lot of adolescents are particularly malleable and impressionable mm -hmm. and open to, you know, social contagion. They're mm -hmm. open to all different kinds of things. And so it's very, and so often people will have a period in their adolescence and it will pass when they reach yeah. 20 or so. Hmm. So, yeah, well, her actual diagnosis. Like, mm. As a practicing psychiatrist, there's a kind of, we, we have this concept of adolescent turmoil. In fact, a lot of parents have that concept too. It's, <laughs> it's trying to make sense of things and nothing makes sense. And, it's a mixture of hormones and immaturity and uncertainty, and then gradually they lock, come out of it and lock down into uh, into the way we all kind of lock down into working out what we're trying to be and following a, a kind of self-determined path. But it is, yeah, it can be very disturbing. It's actually quite hard sometimes to make the diagnosis of schizophrenia in someone who's uh, you know in late teens. You know. Mm, so the, well, there you go. So I'm happy to hear that because it sort of speaks to what I'm thinking with her. I guess it's it makes sense for him to go after you know teenagers. Usually they are women that he goes after, mm -hmm. but teenagers because if you have this placebo time, which I guess will be different in everyone, but it seemed to last months, maybe a year, maybe longer. If you have that sort of papering over the cracks yeah. in teenage yeah. years. And by the time the placebo has worn off, particularly with this girl, Paula, because she was mm. 17, 18 when she had her exorcism, mm. by the time it may have worn off, she might have been 19 or 20 years old and a little bit, you know, better it suited to grown life. Through it, so to speak, yes. Yeah. But did he only, yeah. did he only exercise yeah. people with mental problems? Or, sorry, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm struggling a little bit to work out whether the, his sort of definition of possession is in your mind or is it, can you have other problems that you're possessed with? 
Or do you think oh, that? it tends to be psychological issues. Right. Um, but like I say, there was the breast cancer stuff, you know, no. you drink this oil and it will cure your breast cancer. Whatever suits him on that day, whatever he can sell, you know, somebody went to see him because her friend had stolen her chickens and she thought that her friend had put a curse on her. So ah, there is the stuff yes. that is purely paranormal yes, as well. Yes. <laughs> you were quite intrigued by, I mean, by the whole concept of how, you know, a powerful suggestion, I suppose you'd argue, could you know lead to enduring changes in people's behavior and, and i think that's something you've been fascinated with since would, would that be fair to say oh absolutely i've been looking into you know i read this book the expectation effect by david robson and he he talks he writes a lot about it, and he came on my podcast as well and talks right. a lot about you know people who wait for they appear to wait for certain events to transpire before dying of old age, for example, yeah. that seemed to happen. I think it was two or three presidents died on the same day because they were waiting for some big occasion to pass. Yeah. So, yeah. so yeah. there is sufficient evidence that placebo and expectations play a huge part in our, our mental health and our physical health, the physical stuff. So the other, yes. one of the best things I've read about with respect to this was about Parkinson's, which is that you can treat the disease with with placebo. You give someone a placebo and the brain will actually create well, you'll probably know more than I do about this, will actually create things that, that make the pain go away to an extent. Well, yes, anyone who's uh, kind of worked in the field of, of medical interventions or so, you know, has inevitably had to think about the placebo effect. I'll come back to that in a minute because I just wanted to share with you the story that I've long been interested in, the relationship between the heart and the brain, you know, why, why people feel fear in their heart when it's actually something in their brain, for instance. <laughs> And uh, a few years ago, we put together a conference uh, of psychiatrists and cardiologists. It's a very unusual conference. And uh, one of the cardi American cardiologists there told us this story, which seems to be completely credible, but it's true because he, he there's this woman who was kind of cursed and told she was going to she was going to die on this particular day. And she was, I think, a, you know, a black woman in her thirties. And she went to her, you know she went to the doctor and said, "Look, I'm really worried. I think it's going to happen." And he said, "Don't be stupid. Of course, it's not going to happen." You know, but to prove it's not going to happen, we're going to admit you to hospital and you're going to be in hospital over, overnight. You're going to live through that day in hospital. But she still died. And it, it reminded me of the, those stories. I don't know if you've come across them about how the indigenous Australian people, the, the Aboriginals, the uh, medical man could, would point the stick and say to someone, you're going to die. And the person would just waste away. So the power, and that's one of the reasons I got interested in psychiatry, the power of the mind to change the body is, is kind of, it's kind of terrifying. And, the placebo effect mm -hmm. one, is one aspect of that. There are many other aspects which are almost unresearched because they seem too implausible. But I think, you know, you've seen them and I've seen, you know, heard of them. So oh, yeah. The subject, it should be the subject of study, but it's not easy to know how to do it. Is that a true story about this woman then? Yep. So it is true. So I, oh. the person that was treating her was, uh, was actually sharing that. He, and he became convinced of this enormous, this powerful relationship between what you're thinking and how your heart is working. He believed yeah. that she thought she was going to die, and so somehow her her brain stopped her heart. Which, which is, I mean, I, I guess. Well, you if you look at the other side of the coin, you have the yogi who can, after years of transcendental meditation, can slow their heart rate down to virtually nothing. They're going to virtually hibernation. I mean, you know, maybe some kind of maybe fear could produce similar kind of effect. An arrhythmia, for instance, stop the heart. You know, make the heart go irregular. Mm. So. Uh, yeah. So the brain is more powerful than we think. It isn't just about having discussions, you know, intellectual discussions. It's actually about, you know, producing, you know, you know, what it can produce these powerful changes in people.
So to get back to your comment then about Parkinson's and, and placebo, and it, I mean, one of the things that I think we know about the placebo effects, so not from my work, but there's an Italian who I've heard speak several times on this, is that the, the pain-killing effect of placebo does seem to relate to the release in the brain of pain-killing chemicals called endorphins. You know, and most people know while well, they're the sort of, you know, they can be released by things like running, exercise, but it seems like they are, they probably don't exist in the brain to make you feel good after a long chase after a buffalo or whatever. They probably exist in the brain to help you deal with pain. And they've been around a long time before we ever had any real painkillers. So they're the body's natural painkillers and, and they can, they're released when you're in pain, but they can be released when you are thinking that you're going to get something to, to deal with your pain. So the interesting question then is not is kind of not why not that they're released because we know they can be released, but why thinking about pain reduction would actually release them? And I, I have to say I don't have a I don't have a good explanation for that. Mm, well, I think it's a great point what you're saying about the pain and why that might exist in humans. Because obviously, I mean, the, the placebo was a huge, huge thing in like World War One, and there's all these legends and stories about doctors mm. who would would treat patients and amputate their legs and things, and the patients would actually ask them not to give them any numbing, any anything to numb their pain. They didn't need it because the adrenaline was so strong, and yes. uh, that's yeah. what got a lot of doctors thinking about placebo and, and had the power of the mind. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, in times of extraordinary stress, the, you know, the adrenaline can certainly override any kind of pain experience. But, but when it, of course, and then when you when the adrenaline settles down, then you the pain is still there. It lasts a lot longer than the stress response. That's the thing, isn't it? And that's the thing with the exorcism that was so interesting is that it lasted for so long afterwards. It's, we're talking about months, but this is mental pain we're talking about. I just looked up what the, the Parkinson's thing, and it was. It's, I've just seen neuroimaging studies have demonstrated that placebos stimulate the release of dopamine in the striatum of patients with Parkinson's disease and can alter the activity of dopamine neurons using single cell recording. It's yeah, like no, a drug, isn't it? Yeah, that is an, I actually think, I, was that out of um, Vancouver, was it? Might be, yeah. I think I know that paper. That's a that's a really interesting paper because I've been long long been interested in the role of dopamine in in addiction, and there's there's some quite good evidence that certainly some drugs release dopamine. If you if you use cocaine or amphetamines and probably alcohol, some of the effects of alcohol are due to the release of dopamine. And there is a theory that then that you actually your brain gets, becomes conditioned to that. So when you it sort of gets ready, you get sensitized. So as you anticipate getting hold of your your drug that the dopamine system gets turned on. But it's very hard to do those studies, the one you're reading about there, in people with addiction for all sorts of reasons. Like it's unethical, really, to stick electrodes in their brains. But in Parkinson's disease, mm-hmm. you know, there are, there is a treatment, you know, which is putting, it's called deep brain stimulation, where you do put electrodes into their brains and you can use those electrodes to suppress activity, to stop them shaking or to to, to give them more mobility. But you can also use those electrodes to record and look at the activity. And that was a, just, a, just a brilliant paper because it, it really did suggest that part of the benefits of being given dopamine therapy, which is something like L-dopa or a dopamine agonist in Parkinson's disease, was due to the fact that your brain learns to make some dopamine when it's waiting to get the dopamine. Uh, yeah, a compelling, compelling paper. And that it could be that that dopamine is released in some of these other disorders where you get a placebo effect. And it's a powerful motivating transmitter. We actually now moved away. We used to think of it as the reward transmitter, but I don't think that's true anymore because it, it only seems to be pleasurable for things like um, drugs like cocaine. But it does seem to be very important in motivation. So turning on the dopamine system could give you the motive, the motivation to engage in behavioral change and potentially um, 
persist in it. You know, it could be uh, how these people begin to you know, overcome and persist in their uh, their dealing with their uh, their problems. So, yeah, no, it's uh, mm. probably one of the best studies, maybe the best study of actually a, a direct measurement of a placebo effect in the brain that I know of. And so, well done for hunting it down. <laughs> what what do you think is going on in the in the minds of of my exercises? Yeah, well, I would probably frame it in a slightly different way now, in the light of the sort of work we've been doing on in with psychedelics. So, in the last few years, we've begun to to reframe our perspective on many disorders like OCD, like addiction, not so much schizophrenia. And I I, I don't know whether that lady really did have schizophrenia, but for, for disorders mm. where people get over-involved in thinking about something like cleanliness with OCD or a drug with addiction. We're beginning now, moving away from the idea that there's a sort of single neurotransmitter driving it, like dopamine and Parkinson's disease, and thinking more about a network. So we're conceptualizing some of these disorders as network disorders where, where people, thought processes get locked into loops, thinking loops, which from which they find it hard to break free, even though they know that they, uh, what they're thinking is doesn't make any sense. So, I mean, people with OCD often realize it's stupid to keep washing mm. because they're not infected, but they can't stop it. And so yeah. it's like conceptualizing some of the behaviors and some of the thinking as as, as habits, you know, like break, chewing your nails or twisting your hair or whatever. And, you know, habits are very hard to break. But when we use psychedelics in these disorders, we actually do, we disrupt for a period those thought loops. And afterwards, it takes some time for them to come back. And you've recently yeah. published a paper showing, you know, the, the disruption of those thought loops, which occurs during the trip, persists. And I think what might be happening with this this Lutheran exodus <laughs> is that the powerful psychology that, you know, committing yourself to the therapy, being surrounded by other people, wanting to get better, having all these individuals there, you know, and almost willing you to get better, probably disrupts. You know, it's such a powerful experience. It disrupts those thinking processes. And it may allow, you know, it may be that they get so well disrupted, they don't settle back. Or more likely, people people see that they can escape from them. And then they, you know, once you're out, it's much easier not to go back in than it is to get out when you're in. So I suspect it's part of this kind of process where humans can will themselves to do remarkable things. And like you were talking about, about not feeling pain in war, but there are plenty of, plenty of people who fakirs and yogi and that who can train themselves not to feel pain. They can walk on hot cars or spikes because they have trained their brain not to respond to pain. So Unbelievable, it, isn't it? And it is remarkable. I mean, and it comes to some extent from you know one of the things we've learned about the brain now is it, it says there are kind of three at a very simple level. There are three hierarchies in the brain. One of them is driving you to do things, and that's the lower one, you know. So, so for instance, if you step on a pin, there's a reflex which says, get off the pin. <laughs> is that like the id? Yes, it could match it absolutely. In, if you want to move into psychological discourse, yes, you could, you could map to that. And then there's the, the sort of the ego, as you, would, as you were thinking of, which would be the appraisal. You know, okay, I've stood on the pin, but, you know, now I, I really... I'm going to do this. I'm going to get down and pull the pin out because that's a sensible thing to do. But then there's a superego. There's a cortex, a very high-level cortex. And that that does is suppress the other two. And there are disorders where the cortex can become so dominant 
that you can't do the other things. So, you know, you, which means that when you stand on a bin, you don't have a reflex because your cortex is suppressing that behavior. And that's, you know, and as I already mentioned, you could, that the cortex can suppress the, your heart rate. It can suppress your, your, your feeling of pain. It, you can do other things. There are these remarkable stories of these highly trained yogi that can increase their, the temperature of their skin so they can, they can sweat off what? water. Yeah, no, truly there's a, there's a peculiar kind of aesthetic <laughs> yogiism where you, ha- you know, in order to achieve a, the next level of a, attainment, you have to sit by a frozen lake all night and you have to evaporate cold water off something like 10 blankets. And people can do that. People can make their bodies hot to evaporate. So the, the power of the mind wow. controlling these lower uh, brain systems is, is actually kind of, it's kind of disturbing really when you... But we don't use it much in the West because we've got other things. You know, we do other things with our lives. We watch TV and you know do sports and that. But if you spend a lot of your time trying to use your mind, you can control things in a, in a, in a way which is, modern science doesn't well, wouldn't really predict. Wow, it's amazing, really. And I can really relate to what you were saying. You mentioned OCD and, and breaking that loop because when I was a teenager, I had quite bad OCD and oh. I had to go to a therapist. Because right. I was basically in a loop is a really good way of thinking of it. Because I was, I couldn't sleep. I was again, it was that adolescent mm-hmm. impressionable mm-hmm. age, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Couldn't sleep because I had like a list of things, and the list started as two or three things, like make sure that the the door downstairs is locked, like and that and that the the hob or the fire yep. or whatever is yep. off, yep. and those right. kinds of things. And then it would just I'd add, you know, just make sure I could, you know, the car door is locked outside. So yes. suddenly I'm going out in the winter at three in the morning in my boxes. Yeah. And then yeah. it yeah. then it became more trivial things like counting the amount of the packets, the number of packets of crisps there were in the cupboard, like as if that were of of any security use. And then it was a list of like 50 things I had to go through. And if it got interrupted, I had to start again. Yes. And it was mad. And my parents sent me to a therapist. I don't mean to exaggerate because some people suffer terribly with OCD and mine, mine was, it was bad, but it was okay. And I went to a therapist and he basically said to me, try to obsess about not doing it now. Like, so not closing your door when you go to sleep and things like that, not checking the light and all those things. And it seems very simplistic, but for some reason it just worked. And I get some of what you were saying about the exorcism, because to an extent, I knew there was a lot of pressure on me. I knew there was a lot of like people wanting me to do well. My mom, it was very important for her. She was, you know, dead worried about me. And, And this guy was just, he just gave me something to break that loop. And by the time I, that sort of might have worn off, so maybe I had a sort of placebo or my had a, I had a sort of loop break for a few months. And after that, I didn't really feel like getting back into the loop, you know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, there are different ways. I mean, so you try to do sort of paradoxical intent, actually sort of thinking the opposite. A lot of people use desensitization, you know, sort of doing less and less or, or thought. Mm. But, but I think the underlying principle, and that's what I wanted to kind of get you onto, because I think that's what you were implying from your your documentary on exorcism was that is it a lot of it's got to do with wanting to get better i suspect if you didn't want to get better and if these people didn't want to improve with the exorcism they probably wouldn't and i've been thinking a lot about about placebo in the last few years because of this whole question of you know of psychedelics yeah you say well they're just super placebo and i'm saying well how do you know that well you know or maybe they're placebo but you can't blind them because Everyone knows the difference between a, a psychedelic experience and not. So therefore, we don't trust your results because you can't hide the effect from the person. And to my mind, anyway, it's, a, it's an interesting challenge. It's a challenge we face all the time. 
But it, one of the, my responses to that is, well, you know, okay, we can't. But on the other hand, people still do better knowing that they've got a treatment than not. So is that just placebo? Or is that actually somehow that their knowledge, that they're involved in therapy, actually part of the process of getting well? I mean, again, similar mm. to what I think you were seeing with these uh, exorcisms. Just a brief aside on the psychedelics point. I tried that because I don't know what it was because we thought it was acid. It was in Colombia. When I was living in Colombia, I went to an island off the coast somewhere. And I'm not somebody, you know, having had all that OCD stuff, I'm probably not somebody right. with the anxiety who should yeah. be doing psychedelics. But I thought you've got to try everything once in your life. And <laughs> we went to an island in the middle of nowhere, me and a friend of mine, on a beach everybody else goes home from the island in the day but we stayed so into the <laughs> evening because we thought oh that'd be a nice place to do it but obviously looking back it's the stupidest thing we could have done because we lost our minds with all the you're just on an island yes. full of animals and stuff on your own with no way yeah no way to get away from it <laughs> so we we were sort of in in like a sitting in a tree and we took these things and they, it wasn't acid I, I later found out it was something that apparently is is not very nice i don't know what it is it has a lot, bunch of numbers and letters in it oh um, i see so you know a synthetic psychedelic all right in colombia i suppose it was using ayahuasca but anyway carry on it wasn't ayahuasca and i wouldn't have done that because I, I hate the idea of vomiting but right <laughs> so this so this drug we, we sort of you know you put it on your tongue and all that and my friend swallowed his and i was about to and i suddenly panicked and i'd had it in my mouth for a while and i sort of spat what was left out and went yeah. what am i doing what am i doing so i convinced myself okay this there must be a way to control my environment that was very important for me so i just said to myself you know what it's not working and my friend, Ricky, he, he I shouldn't say Ricky, it doesn't matter. He, won't get out he was just, oh, I don't even mind. I almost want to dob him in. I, I think he owns his own, well, I won't say more about him anyway, yeah, so yeah, but yeah. it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but he was like going like, oh my God, all the colors and all the things, can you see that? And I honestly, honestly couldn't. I couldn't yeah. see any of the things he yeah. was describing. So I was going, no, 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 I can't. And I was so tight and I was so stressed by it all. The thing is, he was asking me these questions. We were like 30 meters out in the sea at night with a dog, which is not the kind of place I would usually be if I hadn't ingested something. But still, I convinced myself, no, no, I've got my wits about me. This is totally normal. And this is, you know, there was a stray dog that came swimming with us. And we got back to the beach and I lost him. He must have gone walking up a mountain. I was walking off somewhere and pouring with rain, torrential downpour, as you only get in the yeah. Caribbean when it when it really the heavens opened. And I was lying on the beach. My legs were in the sea. I had my phone, which back then would have been like a you know a couple of years after the thirty three tens, the Nokia's or whatever. But it was you know it was ruined because I was just lying yeah. there. But I just thought I was totally normal. I was like, I can't believe it's not working. It's not working at all. This is funny. And then suddenly. When I was looking, I finally I looked up at the clouds, and the clouds took the form of the footballers Cristiano Ronaldo and Leo Messi, and I could see what? it clear as day above me. And I went, okay, and I thought maybe this isn't so bad. This is quite nice, and I relaxed a bit, and then yeah. everything went mad. So mm. it was interesting that it was almost like I was able to almost hold it off until I let it go. If you know what I mean. You're quite right, and in fact, it's very interesting you say that. So that. We see this in our research. Hmm. We see that if you make a lot of effort to fight it, you can suppress it. And and that's one hmm. of the things we actually have to help our patients with. We have to encourage them not to fight it. Because if you fight it, you don't really get the benefit, as you discovered yourself. No. It's only when you let go. That just you the anxiety. Have, um, 
Yeah. And in fact, anxiety is the biggest negative predictor of benefit when we do psychedelic therapy in patients. So we have to work very hard to try and make sure they don't get too anxious and they don't try to control things and, and therefore not get that benefit. We ask them to go with the flow, you know, to go wherever it takes them, because it, even though if you're, you know, if you've got mental illness, so where you go with the trips can be actually quite dark. Usually there's some benefit in it. Usually there's something that's useful and positive there. So resisting it isn't, is the worst of all worlds because you, you don't really get the benefit. And that's what you've come into the therapy for, really. We but, saw that, I suppose, the resistance, the initial resistance with The Exorcist, with yeah. this the first girl that I saw getting it done. She was 17 at the time. Her name's Candela. And she was suffering from bulimia and anorexia. And she'd been cutting her wrists at school. I think this is fairly common in, in teenagers, those yeah, particular yeah, conditions, yeah. particularly with teenage girls. And she went in to have this. Firstly, I felt close to her. I mean, I don't know if you've watched, I'm sure some of the listeners will have watched exorcisms on YouTube and it's usually in Mexico or somewhere and it's done by Vice Media. And it almost seems funny because you're so removed from these people yeah, and you just yeah. think, look at these silly people with their silly yeah, traditions. Yeah, and it's yeah. funny. But what struck me was being there because initially I was taking, I was involved in it. I was ringing the bells. I was like behind, what? this was before Candela actually, this was another woman. And I was ringing bells behind her head and those are supposed to ward off evil spirits. Mm. And obviously I don't believe in that, but I was looking down at her as I was doing it and she's screaming and screaming for over an hour. And I mm. thought this is highly inappropriate for me to be here in this situation. Such an intimate and scary yeah. Yeah. situation where she should be with psychiatrists so after that we said my you know my friend and i said okay we're not gonna i'm not gonna take part in this anymore because it's not appropriate and it's this isn't funny we thought it was funny and it, it wasn't so when it happened to candela we'd already been sort of hanging around with her family meeting her getting to know her for quite a few weeks and she was a really sweet nice person so then to see her struggling with all of this was horrible what struck us was we were there and obviously in the documentary, you can see the documentary on YouTube, on BBC's channel or whatever. But what struck me was it felt like she was resisting. So in the documentary, we have to show that as like one or two minutes, the exorcism. Yeah, yeah, but in reality, we were there an hour and a half while she's screaming and stuff. But the first 20 minutes, nothing. And I actually thought, and I was sort of smiling wryly at my friend who was filming, he's lost his magic. It's not going to work. Mm -hmm. And he's being filmed and it's going to be very embarrassing. But I think he was just so confident because he's done this so many times. And I think yeah. it always works in a similar way to Darren Brown's tricks almost always work. I went to see him recently and he's great. But yeah, so eventually after 20 to 30 minutes, finally she starts saying these things in Spanish. Mm. Leave me alone. Get off. I'm taking her as if she was taking the voice mm. of a devil or something. Mm. Mm. And then she went mad like the screaming i've never seen anything like it it was a good 40 minutes of right. screaming and screaming and saying i'm having her she's mine and all this stuff and the exorcist was going mad obviously enjoying the theatrics of it and the optics her mum's just sitting there next to her chewing gum and it was just a horrific situation for everyone but immediately after she's smiling and laughing she was laughing almost in embarrassment like yeah. oh god what did i what have we all just done but i'm definitely better just instantly yeah. is how, what she said well, it's interesting. I mean, there are several ways of reflecting on it, aren't there? One is, of course, you know, a lot of mental distress is there's an inner conflict, you know, doing, should you do this, shouldn't you do that? You know, you didn't want to do your, your counting, did you? But you had to do it. So that conflict, and if you've kind of conceptualized that as a kind of two people fighting or you fighting with someone, the other you, the anti-you, you could see how yeah. that, that could be construed as, a, as being possessed. 
But I'm also reflecting on things like you see people who have these profound religious transitions, you know, and fall about and speak in tongues, you know, languages they'd never heard before, but they can speak, mm-hmm. you know, the, the ability of these extraordinary alterations in consciousness, which, again, you know, we, we see and we've heard historically, but we don't really experience. And, you know, there's no question there are, our brain has capacities which are generally much greater or very different to what we normally uh, to not normally experience. And, and that's kind of yeah. one of the reasons I think why, you know, why people can get so compelled with joining cults because, you know, they actually allow, it allows them to, to be this kind of extremity that they want to be or, you know, aspects of them would like to react. It allows them to kind of fulfill that side of their character, whereas Sorry, the metaphor, I think I really like what you're saying, and I'd never thought of this before. Obviously, you were talking about the three levels before of the ego and superego or whatever, and this idea that when she was saying she's mine, she it's sort of, I guess it's what the superego is trying to steal her from the ego or from the id or whatever. I really like yes. that. I like that. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. The other thing is worth, you might reflect on this a bit, is, is, is hypnotism. You know, it's, you know, you think, oh, how stupid is hypnotism, but hypnotism is, extraordinary. I remember as a student, we had a, a professor, a professor of psychology at the, the Cambridge. Every year, you know, he hypnotized one of the people in the, who are doing the, uh, the psychology degree. And one year we said, well, give him this guy, he's never going to be hypnotized. And he, he became complete. I mean, it was kind of utterly bizarre. He went <laughs> anticipating, not planning not to be susceptible and ended up doing exactly what he had to do, putting his arm in the air for hours. You know, I mean, it, it was surreal, and that, and that is that again has got to be areas of of the cortex completely controlling everything else in the brain, you know, because you're trying to be compliant with the will of a more powerful person, you know, like the professor and you're the student, and that's what your uh, exorcist priest is doing. You know, he's a person who's not only extraordinarily powerful in terms of his imagery, but also presumably they think he's linked to God as well, do they? Well, yeah. And I think, again, like I was saying before, you want to go into a documentary having learned that your initial view was slightly wrong. I think that's a really nice place to be in. Not completely wrong, but that you come out and you're like, oh, that I never knew that. And now that's changed my mind on those things. And I didn't know how that would happen with exorcism because I'm so, so sure that it's all nonsense. Like the actual, I'm talking about the paranormal side of it. And, you know, I said at the beginning, look, if I see a hobgoblin or whatever it might be, then fine. But until then, no. But one of the things I thought at the beginning was this guy's a fraud. And by that, I mean, he's a a knowing fraud. And I came out of it, go, I don't think he's a particularly nice guy. I think he is taking advantage of people and he knows he is. But if you've helped that many people and that many people come back and say that you, and he probably doesn't think about, you know, the superego and all that stuff. Maybe he really believes in his powers. But did you get a sense he thought he was being directed by God, or did or was it was the Lutheranism just simply a just a useful shot? I think there's that cognitive dissonance stuff, isn't there? There's that that ability to think two things at once, and yeah. I wonder. My best guess, and it's only a guess, is that he's somewhere between the two, and sort of deep down he knows he's a fraud, but yeah. he's just saying, just keep acting like like this is real. And he's incredibly arrogant. And over the years, that side has probably become stronger. The side that is like, I am acting through God, probably has become stronger over the years. We went back to see them a year later. This is the thing. We put little bits on the, oh, yeah, at the end of the documentary, we put these little, you know, those things. You put a little picture and you write. We went back to see a year later. And, well, okay, there were three main women 
that we were, and it was women just because that's who he was exercising yeah. at the time. One of them was this woman, Paula, who was just living with him. So we, we couldn't get access to her anymore yeah. because we had a big fallout with the exorcist yeah. at the end of the documentary. But the two other women were Candela and Natalia, who were these women, one with bulimia, the other one had OCD or something like that. She seemed to have, and went back a year later and they were both miserable again. So for a few right. months afterwards, yeah. they were better. And after a year, they were not good. And the, the sad thing was both of them said that they wanted to see another exorcist. And they were saying, no, I don't believe in this guy anymore. And I was like, brilliant. And then they were like, but, and then Natalia said she's now going to a new place where she gets weekly exorcism. Yeah. But the interesting thing was that she went back to see Padre Manuel loads of times saying, I'm sad again, it, it's not working. And Padre Manuel said to her, like, well, you're obviously, there's something wrong on your side because I always get it right. So you're not trying hard yeah. enough. You're not giving it your all, which is a horrible thing to say to oh, someone well, who's already suffering. Yeah. And that's, that's probably what he thought. Andrew, we see this quite a lot in modern psychotherapy, we, particularly with things like CBT. Often, often people who have CBT fail and they blame themselves because, you know, often sometimes they even blame other therapists for not trying hard enough. Try harder. If you try harder, you will get better. And very often, <laughs> the harder you try, the worse it is. So, yeah, mm. it's, not, uh, it's not just the exorcists that want to pass the buck. But I want to I want to suggest something to you because I think you know your perspective on this is fascinating and and obviously your your commitment is pretty pretty impressive that you did this off your own back and went back a year later. What do you think about hypnosis? I think it, I think that the world would really benefit from a proper documentary on hypnosis, not just what it is and how it works, but what the brain the brain science is because now we have imaging tools we can now look into the brain and we can see what goes on in hypnosis and that could uncover things that we don't know and it will uncover things we don't know but it and i just want to say that one of the reasons we started using psychedelics treatmental illness it wasn't because i I, I didn't start off working with psychedelics thinking they were going to work in depression or ocd it was when we did the brain imaging and we saw their impact on the brain circuits which we knew underpinned these disorders that we thought, well, maybe it's worth trying these treatments. And it would be really lovely to to know whether modern hypnosis can be revealed by imaging. And yeah, if you want to do that, I'm very happy to come onto your uh, program and be a bit of a talking head of uh, comparing hypnosis. Oh yeah, psychedelics. I would love that. Well, you are coming on, aren't you? So that's going to be great. I, I'm going to put down a whole list of things, and hypnosis will definitely be on it. I got a couple hypnosis stories because yeah. <laughs> I had Chris Hughes on, who's a sort of uh, celebrity hypnotist. He came on the oh, podcast, right. Right. and so the first thing he did, I was saying, "What is it at its at its most fundamental? What are you doing yeah, here?" And, yeah. and they all say different things, slightly different things, and they all seem to not really know. And I've heard Darren Brown interviewed about yeah. it a lot but and he, they don't quite know and they don't know who's going to be more susceptible they can't tell but yeah. he just said look if you want a basic basic thing he said he wanted me in, in advance he said get like a string with something on the end of it like a dime or i don't know a, a dice yeah. or something so i had i held this up to the camera or whatever and he said right and i want you to hold it still and i go okay i'll hold it still and then he starts saying like okay but i want you to hold it still while thinking left right left right and obviously you know it starts <laughs> moving left and right and i was like how are you doing this what is this dark power this, this black magic that you're using on me and i felt like i was holding and he's now going it's going round and around now and then i was going and obviously i it's like ouija boards to an extent to an extent obviously my i'm doing it but I really didn't feel like I was. I tried yeah. as hard as possible to stay still and I couldn't. So he was controlling me. And then I got him later, a year and a half later, I yeah. had to give a speech 
at the Humanist Society mm-hmm. about journalism. And I'm used to doing all this computer stuff. I've got my posh camera and everything. It's very different in front of a group of people, public speaking like that. It's a different, it's a whole different thing. So I said to him, can you hypnotize me to just feel better about it before <laughs> I do it? So, because it was during COVID and everything, and he gave me a free session because we became friends, and he's, he's such a lovely guy. And he got the camera on me, and he says he's got to see me on the bed, which is all a bit awkward, putting my camera, and I'm going to lie on the bed. And he just had me lie there, and he basically said lots of nice things. But first, it was like, you're feeling your eyes closed and all this stuff. Now, I think, unfortunately, because I would like to experience what it's like to be hypnotized, I think I'm not susceptible to be properly being hypnotized. And I really wanted to be. I really, I did that thing of like, he's saying, you feel your eyes, they're very relaxed now as they're closed. But when I closed my eyes, my eyes were like, well, I'm I'm thinking, I'm overthinking and I'm going, am I relaxed now? Or are my eyes stressed? They feel stressed. And he's going, you're lying on a fluffy cloud. And I'm like, am I, everything's hard on my back now. So I I don't think it quite worked in that sense. And yet when I went to give the speech, I was less nervous. And I think it's just that I don't know what it is. (laughs) Well, look, Andrew, we're going to have to wrap this first episode up, but I want you to make note. There are two things I want to talk about the next episode. I want to talk more about hypnosis. There's there's some Mm -hmm. interesting old data that I came across a few years ago, which I'd love to replicate, which I I will share with you. I also want to talk about virtual reality because there's some (gasps) remarkable new research going on about how you can, if you can sort of put people into another body, they actually feel differently about themselves. You may be able to treat mental illness by locking them in a virtual reality in which they're not depressed or anxious. Wow. So let's talk about that next time, all right? That's when you're coming on mine, yeah? That's when I'm coming on yours, yes. Ah, oh, that's going to be great. I, I'm so excited for that. I love all those things. Thank you. That'll be great. Well, Andrew Gold, thanks so much for talking to me. It's been a great session. And as I say, it's the, the first of two. So I look forward to talking to you in the future. And uh, and we will carry on exploring the mysteries of the human brain, which you've done quite a lot of a very innovative work on. So thanks for joining me, and I will see you soon. See you soon. Thank you.